Okay, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? All right, good. And uh, Samantha O, are you in the UK? Yeah, I am. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hello. Hi. Wow. Hi. Global outreach. Very cool. Thanks. So I'm going to talk about uh, life right now. And uh, the topic is life sucks and then you die. So I thought it'd be appropriate because we've been faced with so many challenges lately. Uh, I don't know if you know, but in LA on Friday night, we had a 4.6 earthquake just to top it off. And then we've got the fires burning and we've had unhealthy air for a few days last week. And then we have COVID and then we have the heat. At one point, it was 111 in Los Angeles and 123 in Thousand Oaks. It, it's just nuts. And if you were Christian, you probably think this is the apocalypse. But not being Christian, it's just a bunch of suffering. So I thought to myself, well, how can I suffer less? You know, and in, in my current condition. And the reason I'm in my room rather than downstairs is because I'm an old guy. I'm 71. You know, so if I get COVID, I'm dead. And I got a couple more posts I want to do on Facebook before I die. So I'm, I got to protect myself. And, and uh, so here I am speaking to everybody, you know, in, at my computer. It's, this is so cool. I didn't expect Zoom to be so exciting, but it is. So let's talk about how we can deal with this stuff as a Buddhist, how we can reduce our suffering. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to say the five precepts to ourselves every day. I will not take life. I will not take what is not given. I will not indulge in sexual misconduct. I will not speak unskillfully. And I will not, wait a minute, oh, the fifth one, it slipped my mind. I will not consume intoxicants. You know, I'm reading in the newspaper, well, actually online, that everybody's getting high these days because there's nothing else to do. And if you're not getting high, you're going out to protest. You know, and if you're not out protesting, you're, you're joining some of these political rallies. And I'm just looking at all these people. We all need to get back to work. We have too much time on our hands. We can't do all this stuff. We need to stay sober. We need to stay focused. We need to stay on our Buddhist path as best we can. And the Buddhist path and the foundation is the five precepts, practicing them every day. Now, there was a question uh, last week and, uh, oh, from Nick. Nick said, what is right livelihood? You know, and, and I like that question. So I'm just gonna uh, digress just a smidge here. And after the five precepts, what is right livelihood? It's, it's doing something that supports your life and creates less suffering. Now, a lot of folks are out of work and they're, and they're scared because there's no income. Our, our political system is sort of failing us when it's, it's not sending out the $1,200 checks so I can buy more cat food. 
You know, it was just sort of stuck here waiting for something to happen and nothing's happening. So right livelihood. Now my sister is 70 years old. She has no problem finding a job. The last job she had for three days. <laughs> and then she didn't like the people she was working with. So she quit. I'm thinking, come on, you only worked three days. You didn't give anybody a chance, you know? So if you have to work to make a living, I think we need to think about what do I wanna do? Is this a good opportunity to change my career path and do something that I've always wanted to do? Something that benefits humankind and myself as well. Something that stays in the parameters of right livelihood. And, and it's, a, it's, it's hard to understand that this is an opportunity for all of us to really look at our life and say, okay, what does my life mean? What does it mean to me? And what does it mean to other people? And I don't know if you've had the wonderful experience of having a million thoughts come up about everything you've ever done in your whole life because you've got too much time on your hands and half the stuff you hate and the other half the stuff you wish you didn't do. And once in a while, there's something that you're happy that you did. Well, you know, we can't go back and change it. So the only thing we can do is change our mind about how we reflect on the stuff we've done and the stuff we're gonna do. We still have a lot of future ahead of us. I have less being old, but all you young guys out there, you got, you got some time on your hands. You can do other stuff. You might wanna make less money and do something you like, or make more money and do something you don't like. You know, we have an opportunity. So here we go with the five precepts. And what happens after the five precepts? We gotta meditate. We gotta reflect. We gotta sit down in the quietude of our life and just let the mind relax. Now, I do breath meditation because I'm always breathing and I figure that's a good object to watch. And, and it allows me to, to come to my breath, which is always happening right now. You know, some people like candles and some people like CDs and some people like guided meditation and, and, and all that stuff is fine, but then you need all that other stuff. You need the CD player, you need to find a candle, you can't find the matches, how am I gonna light the candle? You know, it's just like, okay, your breath is there, man. All you gotta do is watch your breath. You know, and when I say watch your breath, unless it's December in Milwaukee, you're not gonna see your breath. But when I say watching your breath, it's just being aware of the sensation of breath coming in and going out, coming in and going out. And the remarkable thing about breathing, if you don't for five minutes, you're dead. And somehow our whole life, we haven't had that five minutes of not breathing yet. We're still here. It's just an amazing thing to think that after all these years and all the stuff we've done and the missteps we've made, that we're still here. So breathing allows us to see ourselves in a much different way and see how, see basically how impermanent life can be. Five minutes not breathing, seven days not drinking water, eating food, 
in my case, maybe 30 days of not eating food. And then, and then you go, wow, you know, and then fires, earthquakes, gosh, we're still here. So we do have something to be happy about, but the, because we're here, we need to do something with our mind. And meditation allows us to, to cultivate our thinking, to allow our thinking to be more skillful, to come to a place of acceptance with every thought and not giving it a value of oh, this is a good thought or this is a bad thought, but simply this is a thought, thinking, thinking, that's it. That's all we do every day and every night is we just think and think and think. And maybe that's why some people are heading over to the liquor store to get their six pack because they're tired of thinking. But you know what? As a Buddhist, we don't have to get that six pack. All we got to do is sit down for a few minutes and bring our attention to the object of meditation and let the mind settle. And in that settling, we start to feel bliss and happiness and comfort. It's all there. Every fear we've had has been in our mind. Every moment of happiness we've had has been in our mind. It's not outside. It's not the body. Our body has never been happy. Our body has never been fearful. It's the darn mind that keeps giving us the hardest time. So this meditation practice that as a Buddhist, we could do on a daily basis will allow us to come to a place in our life of our present moment existence. And that is a wonderful place to be as long as you're not in a burning building. Because most of the stuff that's going on right now is just how it's supposed to be, you know? And, and I like that. And I like getting there once in a while. But I don't want to get rid of past or future either, because I realize past and future is just more thinking. So as we go into the future of our thoughts and we reflect on the regrets of our thoughts in the past, we can understand that thinking can bring us to the present moment. Thinking can allow us to prepare for the future and thinking can allow us to get rid of the regrets of the past. So we don't want to deny the importance of thinking, but once in a while, it's nice just to turn down the volume, not have those thoughts shouting at us all day long, you know? In my case, when I go to the grocery store now with my mask and my hand sanitizer, my mind shouts to me on the cookie aisle. The Oreos are on sale today, Kusala. Come on, man. Don't pass those up, you know? So I've got to turn down that volume. I don't want, need the Oreos today. Okay, so now we've got the five precepts. We've been practicing those. We haven't killed anything lately. We haven't stolen anything lately. If we have had uh, sexual conduct, we of course worn our mask and we're not lying as much as we used to. And we're not getting intoxicated as often. Okay, cool. Now we're meditating and cultivating our mind. Now the idea is to become aware of the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will free us from the fear and anxiety that we're feeling right now. Because we, as humans sitting in front of our computer screens 
have never gone through this before. I was reading some stuff on the 1918 flu epidemic and I'm going, wow, they all wore masks too. And they went to, they went to watch athletic competition with their masks on, just like we are when, when football Sunday, everybody's got their masks on or their cardboard cutouts, you know? But this is unique because we're able to contact each other. We're able to understand the importance of wearing a mask and let me say, this is not a political statement, but when I wear a mask, I'm doing it not for me. Well, a little bit because it makes me look better, but I'm doing it for you. So you don't get what I have, which is a terrible sense of humor. You know, it's just, we gotta, we gotta think about other people. And the, and the best part about Buddhism, when I started to get into the Buddhist philosophy is the fact that we are actually all interconnected and all interdependent. None of us live alone or separate, even though sometimes we think we do, but we don't. And every time we go on the street or go into the store, we are interconnected with all those other people in there. So wearing a mask just makes sense. And it allows us to practice kindness and be humble and, and feel with a certain sensitivity the suffering everyone is feeling right now, that nobody's really having a good time. It's just really difficult to get through each day. So masks are good. Three aspects of Buddhist wisdom. First one is everything changes. Okay, cool. I am so happy that everything changes because as bad as it is right now for a lot of people, it's gonna be different. Now for some people, it's gonna get worse. For other people, it's gonna get better. But when it gets worse, you know it's gonna get better. And when it gets better, you know it's gonna get worse. It's just a matter of riding that impermanence wave. You know, in, enjoy the good stuff while it's there. It's very temporary. Don't get too attached or defensive about the bad stuff. And among, and, and don't personalize it. That bad stuff is not about you. It's not your fault. You're not a victim. You were born as a human in samsara. We are going to suffer until we achieve nirvana. And as I look at the screen, I don't see anybody who's achieved nirvana. So I'm thinking we're all gonna be suffering for a really long time, maybe lifetimes. So we can't personalize it. As a Buddhist, we just say, this is how it is, you know? This is just how it's gonna be for a while. And so I've got to figure out how to suffer less and ultimately not suffer at all. And the best way not to suffer is to practice Buddhism because ultimately Buddhism turns into performance and you'll never have to suffer again. But until then, think about the impermanence in your life. Think about all the stuff you just took for granted that has changed. It's just amazing. Now, I have found YouTube to be rather interesting during this COVID crisis because I never watched YouTube before. And now I watch it every day. And one of my favorite programs is called Dash Cam Car Crashes. Man, and Russia is the best. They got the best car crashes in Russia I've ever seen. 
But what I have come to understand is life is very temporary and changes in just a matter of a millisecond. So please drive carefully and buy your dash cam so you can submit your video to YouTube and make people like me smile because I haven't seen anybody get hurt, but I've seen so many cars just in pieces. And I'm going, wow, there is something interesting on YouTube. And also another one I found is, is the daily walks. People are walking all over the United States and Europe with, with, with cameras. And so you get to go on walks with them. And I like Action Kid in New York. He goes to Manhattan, he goes to the bridges, he goes here and he goes there. And sometimes he's got commentary, sometimes he doesn't. But here I sit in my little room, you can see my little room here. And I get to go walking in New York, wow. And sometimes in Berlin, whoa, England, London as well. I get to walk with some guys over there and some gals. So it's a way of investigating the world without ever having to leave your room. My mind is just travels and travels and travels. But I also see the impermanence of everything all these people are doing. That eventually you have to stop walking and turn off the camera. Eventually you have to get some food so you can stay alive another day. Eventually you have to turn off YouTube because you got more important things to do, like read the Dharma, practice meditation, and reflect on the five precepts. So impermanence should be one of the things we are aware of and not afraid of, because the world couldn't exist without impermanence. The second Buddhist wisdom that we need to reflect on is life isn't very comfortable. It feels like it's gonna get even worse. It doesn't feel good. People call that suffering. People call that uh, not accepting things the way they are. People call it a, a multitude of things. But really what I think about it is just, I don't feel good right now. I just don't, I wish that it was a little bit cooler. I wish there wasn't so much smoke in the atmosphere. You know, I wish I had bought those Oreo cookies. Things just could be better and they're not. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, why is that? Is the world set up to be suffering? And before I became a Buddhist, I, I didn't suffer at all. I was very happy. I thought, wow, look how lucky I am. I got a girlfriend, I got a car, I got a job. Look at all the clothes I get to buy. Man, life is just really good. And then I found Buddhism. And Buddhism said, Kusala, you got to think about this, man. You're just not thinking deep enough yet. You got to look at the world the way it really is. That you became separate because of language and mathematics. You're never embraced by the universe in the same way you were when you were just a small, tiny tot, a little baby. You just, and, and now you get out there and you try to do this and you try to do that and that doesn't work and this doesn't work. And you're just saying, wow. How can it work? I, I guess I got to go to school and get a degree and spend $100,000 so I can have a really good life. And a lot of people have done that and life didn't get much better. Just their debt got bigger. And now you go, wow, well, maybe I need to get married. And then they did 
and that wasn't it either. And then they said, well, maybe I need to be single again. And that didn't work either. And it was just, we try all these ideas and concepts and actions, and it just doesn't seem to lead us to a place of ultimate happiness and peace. And the Buddha called this place we live in samsara. This is where birth and death occur every day. Every day, birth and death. And in between birth and death, you just suffer. So you go, wow, what a pessimistic viewpoint Buddhism seems to have. And yet, when you look at it carefully, when you see it clearly, you go, you know, this is, this is reality. This is just the way it is. But I have the ability to change the way I experience the world. I have the ability to change the way I experience the world and end my suffering. Now, I have looked carefully around Los Angeles and have not seen suffering outside of my mind. I can't find suffering as a color or a sound or a touch or a taste. I can't find it. So I said to myself, suffering is internal. It's the way I experience the world. That's why I suffer. That's why I don't feel comfortable in a lot of situations. It nothing to do with outside and everything to do with inside. Now outside gives us pain. And when we relate to the pain in a certain way, we suffer. And one of the things I found out about going to the hospital years ago because of a cat bite is the doctor was there to relieve my pain. And if I had a religious person there, they'd be there to relieve my suffering. Okay, so one is for the mind and one is for the body and we can take all sorts of pills to end our pain, but there are really no pills to end our suffering ultimately. Temporarily, we can go unconscious, but we always seem to wake up to the same old stuff again and again and again. So if we look at suffering as being just the way it is, and we see we have the option of changing the way we experience the world, therefore reducing our suffering, we are accountable for our suffering. It's up to us. Number three, this is the weird part about the whole thing. We have impermanence, we have suffering, and there's no one there to suffer. We're not who we think we are. We never have been. We have this illusion of ego and personhood and self, which is there, undeniable, it is there. We do exist as a person, and that's how people relate to us at a relative level. But at an ultimate level, we're simply just another process from uh, being created by circumstance and place and thoughts and experience and history and future. All those things combined create us moment by moment. Fascinating. So if there's no one there to suffer, where does all the suffering come from? It comes from personhood. It comes because we exist 
at a certain relative level and that doesn't go away until we achieve nirvana. But it doesn't mean we disappear. Now we simply do things without having to be anybody. Things just do themselves. We are not in charge any longer. Wow, how cool would that be? How cool will that be once we finally reach the end of our practice and come to that place of nirvana, never having to suffer again? And after we have achieved nirvana and we die, we never have to be reborn again. Now, I know everybody wants to go someplace when they die. And we've got plenty of heavens in Buddhism, and we have a lot of hells, unfortunately, as well. And we have nirvana. But when did our suffering start? It started because we were born. Okay. And because we were born, we get old. And because we get old, we are going to die. And it continues lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. Nirvana is the way out. Nirvana is a radically different way of existing. It it's, falls in between existence and non-existence, which we can't understand because we need dualism in order to have understanding. So this is a non-dual idea of life after death. But is it really even life? Is it really even existence? We can say with some certainty that nirvana after death is, is a pretty comfortable place to be. And you'll never have to worry about returning again. So as we practice in these really difficult times, keeping the five precepts, understanding how important wearing a mask can be, understanding that we need to meditate so we can continue cleansing our mind, cultivating our mind, not personalizing all the stuff we've done, and not, not having regrets about the future. That the future is going to be what it is, and it's our job to be ready for it, whatever it is. And the five precepts and the meditation and understanding the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, impermanence, suffering, not self, will prepare us for anything that happens in the future. And will it be good? Will it be bad? That's just a value we give it. We have no idea. We have no idea how it's gonna turn out. And to be honest with you, that is the most exciting part of life. We don't know. Some of the wisest people I've ever listened to when asked the question, what's gonna happen? They simply say, I don't know. And that allows them then to be ready for any possibility in the future. So don't know is a wonderful mindset to carry with you in these times. Don't get too attached to the bad. Don't get too attached to how good it's going to be. Simply understand that we live each day. We walk one foot in front of the other. And we're awake as much as we can be 
to all the circumstances that can bring us happiness and sadness, joy and pain, and we get to choose and we get to change the way we experience it. So I'm gonna stop right there. I, I know Shraddha's have a good time listening to me. I can tell by his face there. But um, does anybody have any comments on what I've said? I hope I didn't depress anybody too much, you know? But th these are depressing times. So, you know, but, but tonight we have the Emmys. So, I mean, how good can it get? I mean, you know, sorry, this is LA. So we, we, have, to, <laughs> we have to say those things. Okay, question, anybody got a question? Comment, answer? Okay, Nick. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, Nick. Thank you very much for your generosity and giving the talk today. Uh, you're, my, you're my favorite stand-up. Ah, thank uh, <laughs> you. <laughs> um, during this time of quarantine uh, and all the temples being closed, how do I find uh, a Dharma teacher or a meditation teacher well, you know, it, they will find you. Uh, you don't have to go out and search for them. And, and actually, everything in your life is your teacher. You know, I've often thought that, you know, I've got a variety of teachers. Some show me what to do. Some show me what not to do. Uh, most of them show me what not to do. And, and then... Uh, you know, one of my teachers was Shinzen Young. He was here, he's a vice abbot. Another teacher was Dr. Ratnasara, you know, and, and so they come and go out of your life. And, and then somebody the other day said, well, well, who's your teacher now? I said, well, the Buddha, he, he's the best teacher. I just needed the other people in my life to sort of interpret what the Buddha said so I could have a deeper understanding. But at some point, if you practice long enough, what the Buddha says makes sense and it's deep and allows you to find your freedom. So I wouldn't worry too much about finding a teacher. Just keep going to Dharma talks and, and watching YouTube. There's a lot of good teachers up there. And, and, and sometimes they'll validate what you've experienced and sometimes they'll invalidate it. But nobody, no teacher that I have met has ever had the same experience as I have. So if, if I ask, I, I remember with Shenzhen, uh, Shenzhen Young, who used to be here, he, um, I, I had an interesting experience after a meditation retreat. So I, I went up to Shenzhen, I said, Shenzhen, let me tell you what happened. And I explained in great detail my experience after the retreat. And he looked at me and said, progress, progress. And I'm thinking, what the hell does that mean, progress? So sometimes, you know, it, you need people to validate you. Sometimes you need people just to listen to you. And, 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 and finding the best teacher is not necessarily the best way to become free because you need the teacher. You have to get past even the teacher. So the Buddha said, you know, at some point, if you want to be free, you're going to have to give up Buddhism. Because Buddhism is going to limit you in a very big way, but it's going to limit you. So that would be my advice. Thanks, Nick. Okay. Da, 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 da. 
Anybody else have anything they'd like to say? Ah, uh, Maria. Oh, Shanti Gill. Your microphone's off. Hi, Kusala. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm Maria, but Shanti's my son. Thank you for your talk, Kusala, always. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, sufferings in the mind, impermanence, you know, noble truths and so on. So I was thinking about then what motivates the Bodhisattva? Because the Bodhisattva knows these things well. So what motivates the Bodhisattva? Uh, what motivates the Bodhisattva, and because you're a, a, a social worker, you're, you're sort of like a Bodhisattva going out there into the world. I, I think what motivates the Bodhisattva attitude is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all things. That the homeless guy on the street isn't you at a relative level, but it's you at an ultimate level. And, and their suffering becomes your suffering. And as a Buddhist, our job is to end suffering. You know, it's not to find him a home. But if we can find him shelter, he'll suffer less. It's not to find him food. But if we find him food, he'll suffer less. So our job is really just to reduce the suffering as best we can. And, and sometimes we can't. Sometimes, no matter what we do, the suffering is still there. But it's our suffering as well. So for me, the Bodhisattva is someone who has directly experienced the suffering of all humankind and realized it was their suffering. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Yes, peace. Hello, Kusala. Yeah. I enjoyed seeing you at Leisure World when I was lived in California. Ah. Now we're up here in Washington. Before you leave us today, I wonder if you could alleviate our suffering with a couple of minutes on your harmonica. Oh. <laughs> sure, I, I'll I'll do it at the end, but it may right. cause suffering for others. Uh, you know, we'll have to. <laughs> I'll have to be careful. Thanks, peace. Yes, Ray, Ray in L.A. Hi, neighbor. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, Dhamma talk. I get suffering. I get impermanence. I'm having a difficult time with this concept of no self, not self. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more, please? Yeah, uh, I can. And, and, and not self took me a really long time to wrap my head around. And, and there was a book called The Spectrum of Consciousness by Ken Wilber. And this was the first book he wrote. And and I found a dog-eared copy at the old Bodhi Tree bookstore on Melrose. And I didn't know who Ken Wilber was, but I started paging through the book and said, this is it. This is the book. And so I bought the book, I read the book, and I came to a book-like understanding of not-self. It allowed me to see that uh, we have been created and we continue to be created every day, but there's no soul or self to be found in any part of us. It's simply our body and our mind interconnected and interdependent. Now, there are some characteristics that seem to be ours because of the way we've been put together 
because of all the past lives we've experienced and this life as well, that allows us to act in a certain way. So people can recognize us and people can say, hi, Kusla, how are you? Because you're acting in a similar fashion each time they see you. So there is a relative self that's very real and needs to be honored and taken care of. And there's an ultimate non-self that needs to be known and understood as best we can, but not to get attached to. Because being a non-self in a very complicated society like we live in would be the end. And, and if you want to know what it's like to be a non-self, look at somebody who has an advanced case of Alzheimer's. You know, the, the self is no longer working for them and they need constant care and support. So we don't want to get rid of the self. What we want to understand is the relative self is our friend and we can make that better. There's nothing we can do about the non-self, but the non-self is the ground of being that allows us to be someone. Did you find that helpful? I, I'm going to Thank you, Reverend Kusala. And uh, order the book as well. And uh, maybe that's a start. Yeah.